1 John 4, 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thank you. Be seated. Let's pray together. God, it's so good to be gathered uh, together with brothers and sisters in the Lord, with friends, with family, and to be able to come before your word. God, we humbly confess that on our own we are so, so inadequate. God, to be able to comprehend you uh, is impossible. Uh, And yet, God, you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, and now through your word and the Spirit, who now gives uh, life and meaning uh, to your word. Uh, and to our hearts. And so, God, I pray, God, that you would move in these moments to let us know you for who you are and glorify you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We all have uh, people people that we look up to and admire. I imagine you've got some people uh, that you admire close in your life, people that, uh, that you know personally. But we also always, you know, there's people that we kind of admire from a distance, right? Maybe if you're a, a big sports fan, you're your favorite coach or your favorite athlete. You don't know them personally, but you admire them from a distance. Uh, You may have uh, a business person in your life or uh, somebody in your field that you just admire the way they live, even though you don't don't really know them. In in ministry, I've got uh, some pastors that have been highly influential and personal, uh, people that I know that have impacted me. But there's also a, a handful of people that I don't know them, they don't know me, but I've watched their ministry from afar and have learned a lot and grown a lot, and so they're kind of heroes to me. One of the early people who had a big impact in my life was David Platt, who I've, you know, I went to his church one time when I was passing through on vacation, but he doesn't know me. But I, I watched his ministry, and he was really, you know, has been helpful to me as I've learned uh, the Word of God. Uh, I met uh, a friend of his in Spartanburg, uh, DJ Horton, uh, went to seminary with uh, David Platt, and I just thought that, you know, DJ was just the coolest guy ever, because I, you know David Platt, that's so cool, you know, and uh, I know those names don't mean anything to you, but they, they both talk about their hero, so the guy that influenced them was this guy named Dr. Shaddix, and they both went to seminary uh, to study with Dr. Shaddix, and so, like, here's my level of hero, and my hero's hero is Dr. Shaddix, so, like, he's this, you know, again, you don't know him, you wouldn't know him if you walked in the door, but to me, it's like, wow, Dr. Shaddix, he's, he's had such a big impact on so many people. He teaches pastors. He's at a seminary in, in Southeastern. He, he's an incredible pastor. He's had a lot of influence, whatever. So that's what I thought of Dr. Shaddix. I'll say all that to say, I'm driving down the road one day a few years ago. I'm in Woodruff, and uh, I'm actually heading to First Baptist Woodruff to meet uh, with a pastor there. And I, uh, my phone rings, and I usually don't answer numbers that I don't know. But it was a number in Colorado, and for some reason I answered it. And uh, the other the person on the line says, hey, is this Philip Long? I said, yes, who's this? And the voice said, this is Dr. Shaddix, preaching professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I said, <clears throat> yes, sir. <laughs> uh, I, I said, I, Dr. Shaddix, I, I know who you are. Why, why, do you know, why do you know who I am? You know, and thankfully, uh, I was like about to walk into a meeting, so I, I had an excuse to like 
I had to get off the phone in a hurry and set up another time to call so I could like compose myself you know, to return his phone call. He was calling about this, uh, this program where, where people can come up and take classes periodically, and, and that's a, a great thing. DJ had you know, given my number away, and that was great. But I just had this moment of like, why are you calling me? You know? and, and that's the closest moment I've had to like getting in touch with somebody that I think is just way beyond somebody I should know. You know? Now just multiply that times infinity and think about how cool it is that God is pursuing you. The God of the universe, the God who created all things, the God who knows all things, He's not just calling your, your phone. You don't need a, an iPhone to talk to Him. You can just talk to Him. God is with you and He is pursuing a relationship with you. It'd be one thing for us to, to, to go, wow, yeah, I know who God is. I've read about Him. I've, I've heard about the influence He's had. But, but here's the, the best part. God knows who you are. God, God knows exactly who you are. And He is pursuing a relationship with you. For the last few weeks, we have been studying what the Bible says about God being a trinity, God being three in one. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but He is one essence, one being. He is God. And the one, one massive truth that that tells us is that in His very core, in His very nature, God is love, which means God is personal. That means God can know you and you can know Him. He's not just a, a power or a force like we talked about last week. He's not just a, a substance or something that, that just has a, 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 an influence in the world. He's personal and He wants a relationship with you. That's the massive truth that the Bible unfolds for us in understanding who He is as God. Today, I, I want you to hear, even if it's for the millionth time, I want you to hear that God Himself, He truly loves you. And as we consider what this week means for the church, as we consider what, what's coming next Sunday, and what we recognize and remember for this coming Friday, I want you to hear that this is incredible, that this God knows you and loves you. Today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, and so on Friday we will remember and we will uh, think about what it was like 2,000 years ago when Christ went to the cross. Jesus came into Jerusalem this day 2,000 years ago as we celebrate Palm Sunday. And He came into the cheers, into the clapping and the waving of the palm branches, and people were excited to see Him. But then on Friday, they were ready to kill Him. If you've been around the church for a while, that, that's not new to you. But I, I pray that as you consider what it means for God to be three in one, as we consider this holy week, that you'll be stirred afresh and anew to worship Him for who He is. Last week we looked at our sin against God and how it, it fractured that relationship, how it tore apart what God intended for us to have. But as we prepare for Friday, we're remembering what it took for God to, to bring that back together. This one act, this one day of God's action in human history tell us so much about who He is. So today I want to focus us on the cross. I want to think about what it means as we consider the cross, and then I want to give you four implications of the cross, especially in light of who He is as the Trinity. We just read, uh, Travis just read for us 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So as we, we think about the cross this morning, here's what I want you to, to take home and remember. The greatest act of love. 
the greatest act of love was our triune God's self-sacrifice on the cross. There has never been, nor will there ever be, a greater display of love, a greater uh, affection for anybody than this act, the self-sacrificing love of God on the cross. We've said that God is love because He is three in one. He has always had that perfect relationship with Himself. So He needs nothing. He never needed anything. Before creation, God had everything He ever needed. And yet He was so full of love, so filled with love, He poured out that love in making creation. It's amazing that God would have that much willingness. He didn't need it. He just wanted to share this love with others. And so He created the world. The shocking twist in human history is that we, the recipients of that love, rejected the one who created us. That's the, the, the almost unnerving, un- unimaginable uh, reality of our sin. That how could we, little old us, reject the one amazing being of the universe, the one who is ultimate truth, and we rejected Him? And as shocking as that is, what's even more shocking is the next step in the story, right? is that God didn't just immediately wipe us all out. It's incredibly gracious and loving of God for Him to create us. But it's an even greater display of love that He continued to love us after we rejected Him. And that's what we celebrate on the cross. Jesus uh, told His disciples in John 10, 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. He's talking about His own life. That Jesus, the eternal Son of God, laid down His life for us. This was not plan B. This was not uh, just Jesus had something ripped out from underneath Him. God, from the beginning, planned this, and Jesus gave His life away to display this love for us. The cross is the, the apex, the climax of His display of love. And why did He do it? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but should have eternal life. God has offered a way for us to be reconciled, for our relationship to be restored, and for us to walk with Him. And He did it by showing His love. 1 John 3, 16, this is, this is how we know what love is. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. Jesus' self-sacrifice, that's the very definition of love. The very definition of love. The greatest act, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, and someone lay down His life for His friends. Love is when we're willing to suffer, we're willing to sacrifice for, the, for, for somebody else. When we're willing to give up ourselves for somebody else, that is love. And Jesus is the very highest, highest example of that in all of human history because of who He is. Considering that the Trinity helps us see the, the beauty of that, see the glory of that. Our, our sin is what made the cross necessary, Right? Without our sin, the cross wouldn't be necessary. But because we sinned against a perfectly holy and infinite God, our our sin is infinite. There's an infinite amount of sin because we sinned against an infinite God. And so God's justice would have been totally right for us to to pay for that, to, to spend eternity paying off that debt. That would have been justice for God to do that. And yet, the, the, the big word in the, the verse I just read in 1 John 4.10 is propitiation. So there's your, there's your $2 word to take home to a friend at lunch today. If you want to make them scratch their head, you can use this word, propitiation. That's in 1 John 4.10. Propitiation means to absorb the wrath. Absorb the wrath. 
So this word captures the gospel for us in a powerful way. Our sin deserves judgment. That's bad news. The good news is that Jesus took that judgment. The good news is that, yes, God is perfectly holy. Yes, God absolutely requires punishment for sin. And yet, He's the one that made the payment. He's the one that took the wrath. He's the one that took the punishment on the cross. For all who believe in Jesus, we don't have to experience the wrath that we should because Jesus paid for it. Jesus took it. And because He took that wrath, now we can experience God's love. Just imagine that day. So many times you know, with movies or, or, or descriptions of the cross, we, we think of the, the physical pain. And yes, that was awful, right? I mean, nails through wrists and ankles, suffocating on the cross, that would have been awful. But that pain is nothing compared to what Jesus experienced in His relationship with the Father. Matthew 27, 46 says, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani, which is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the Son of God, had the perfect relationship, the perfect communion with the Father, with God. And it was that, that relationship is the greatest love that was at the heart of the universe, the greatest love imaginable. And now He on the cross is forsaken. The wrath of all that, that God had for all sin, for everybody who believed, for all of His children, all that wrath was poured out in that one moment. And so God the Father forsook the Son. And His deity and His Godness, the eternal Son of God, could never change, so He could never be separated from God. So we'll be careful about the way we describe this. The Trinity never changes. However, in, in His humanity, Jesus took on our sin and bore the wrath of God upon Himself. So He willingly gave up His communion. He willingly gave up that relationship, and He was forsaken by the Father. And because He was forsaken, we never have to be. Here's the beauty and the glory of the crucifixion and the resurrection, is that we deserve to be forsaken, and yet for everybody who believes in Him, we never have to be, because Jesus did it for us. He took on that wrath. He took on that punishment. He took on the separation so that we could forever be united to Him by grace and through faith. The reason this is the greatest act of love is that nobody's ever sacrificed more. Nobody's ever given more than what the Son gave on the cross. He had the perfect relationship with the Father, and He willingly gave it up to display love to you and me. We are so undeserving, and yet He gave it for us. There is no greater love than what Christ did for us, His death in our place, and so we praise Him for it. So as we consider the cross, as we think about that, and we think about what it means for God to be three in one, I want to give you four implications, if you will, four applications of why this impacts our lives. Because as we go through this week, I'm praying that God would draw you to Himself in a powerful way. So because of our triune God's love at the cross, here's four things. One, we can be adopted. We can be adopted. In our sin, the Bible says we are sons of disobedience. We're following the prince of the power of the air. It means we're following the devil. That's, that's who our father was before we came to know Jesus. But when we do believe in him, we get a new family. We get a new family. There is a, a deep sense in all of us. And you, you sense it 
when, when people feel isolated or they feel alone, it, it can be detrimental. You could be in a crowd and yet feel alone and it, it feels awkward and it feels depressing and it brings anxiety when we don't feel like we've got somebody there for us, right? That, that is a deep wired into our DNA that we are created for relationship. And what God's word tells us is that he brings us into relationship with him. We, he adopts us into his family. And the way the Bible describes that adoption is that all three persons of the Trinity are at work in that. Listen to Galatians 4, 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So that's the father sending God the son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent His Son to redeem us. That is, to buy us back, to take that wrath, to make that payment, to bring us out into His family. And the way He did it was making payment with the Son and then sending His Spirit in our hearts. And we are brought into the family of God. John, 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. We get to be a part of God's very family. And that's amazing. J.I. Packer uh, wrote a really uh, important book that's had a huge impact called Knowing God. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Adoption into God's family is the highest blessing. Many times, and I said this a few weeks back, but many times we think of forgiveness being a a tremendous blessing, and it is. But you could be forgiven by a judge who says you're innocent, and yet you could never, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a relationship, a personal relationship with the judge. For the Father to say, I forgive you and I bring you in my family, is that we now have a relationship with the Father. And it's only possible because the Son died in our place and the Spirit brings us to life. It's amazing that the Father forgives us, but it's even more amazing that He makes us His children. He makes us His family. And it's only possible because of the cross. As parents, we, we mess up so often, right? But on our good days, we, we get a glimpse of what unconditional love is like. Just because our kids spilled their, their breakfast, just because our kids screamed, just because our kids, you know, messed the, something up you told them not to, doesn't mean you stop loving them. You're, you, we discipline them. We, we work to, to make things right. But we don't stop. They're not, they don't stop being our children just because they messed up, right? On our good days, we understand that. There's something, I'm convinced it's almost biological, that like when we found out we were pregnant, and especially like on the day my children were born, there's just this like overwhelming sense of like, I'm going to love this kid with all I got. I I don't even know where that comes from, but it's just deep in your gut. Like this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I'm going to love, this is my flesh and blood. I'm going to love this kid, right? What makes it incredible is that when we were born and when we sinned against God, we weren't His children. We were outside His family. And yet God pursued us and brought us into His family. 
we've, my, if you know uh, some of my family uh, well or met some of my extended family, you know, we've, we've got to experience a, a real-life illustration of this with my, my in-laws. I've got a picture of, my, uh, of Amber and her parents and all of her siblings. There's eight of them now. And you can tell that not all of them are biological, <laughs> right? Uh, my parent, in-laws started uh, foster parenting about the time Amber and I started dating, so 11, 12 years ago. And uh, through that, two girls uh, who are now 19 and 20, no, 20 and 21, uh, they're getting old. Uh, they are, they're not technically, the state of South Carolina doesn't know they're adopted, but they're family, you know. But the two boys, Anthony and Manny, they are greens. They are, they are legally adopted children of the green family. And um, as I, I've watched this family and, and been a part of this family now for this number of years, uh, I, I just see such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Anthony and Manny were not, were not born green children. They were not born into the green family. And yet today, if you go to their house, it's not like Anthony is, a, is, is, is seen as second class. In fact, he might be the favorite. I don't, you know, not that they're supposed to have favorites, but, you know, we celebrated his birthday this week. He turned 13. And I tell you, it's, it's incredible to, to be a part of that family. My, my father-in-law, Benny, when he looks at Anthony, he doesn't see him as kind of family or like, well, I guess he can be family. No, this is, this is Benny Green's son, Anthony Green. He's family. He's family. Manny turns eight this summer. He's, he's family. The family has sacrificed and given everything they can to, to, to love these boys well because they're, they're family. There's no question about that. They don't, they don't sit back and you know, weigh the cost about, well, should I love them this time? Should I do what they need this time? No, they're family. You do anything you can for family. And it's not just because they look like you or have uh, the right, their, their act together, you know. They're family. You do whatever it takes. God, our triune God, when He sent His Son and He died on the cross and then resurrected and sent His Spirit inside of us, and when we believe and we turn from our sins, we become family. And God looks at you as your son, as a son, as a daughter, united to Him in the family of God. Because of our triune God's love on the cross, you can be adopted. You can be in the family of God. And if you come into the family, then that has another implication. It means you are united. United to Him and united to one another. You know what Amber's siblings don't do? They don't have like the biological kids get together and gang up and pick on the adopted kids, right? They, they, don't, they don't like put themselves in a, a status of being above them. They don't have the, the girls come together and say, okay, the boys aren't really family. We'll, we'll treat them as second class. No, there's, there's, not, uh, there's not a group that gets together and says, hey, we're, we're the white-skinned siblings, and you're the dark-skinned siblings, and we don't like you, right? No, this is family. That doesn't make any sense. Of course not, right? They're united together as a family, and so they love each other equally as siblings. The root of our unity as a church comes out of God's unity within Himself. Imagine, I mean, just think about how, how incredible this, this is. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Spirit. They are different persons and yet perfectly united in one relationship, one being, one essence. And so if we are Christians, if we are believers in Christ, we share in that same unity. John 17 captures Jesus' prayer. Uh, he says, The glory that you have given to me, he's praying to the Father, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me 
that they may be perfectly one. And what's the result of that unity? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The most powerful, one of the most powerful witnesses we have to the world is when we who come from different backgrounds and different socioeconomic statuses, different races, different languages, when we get together and we are united and we love each other like family, the world says, hey, that's weird. That's weird. When people come together and the only thing they have in common is the gospel, that is a powerful proclamation of the power of God. It's an incredible testimony to who God is because that is who God is at His core. He is distinct beings who are united perfectly within the Godhead. There, there is a, a lot of buzz you know, in the culture. It's kind of popular ideas today. It's talked about unity and diversity and, and theories that pop up all the time about how we should relate to one another if we're from different places. But, but the Bible is the greatest foundation and the most powerful description of what it looks like for us to relate to one another even when we come from different places. The foundation of that unity is in God Himself. The Father's not the Son, Son's not the Father, and yet they perfectly love one another. It doesn't mean that you, we all become exactly the same, right? Of course we're not going to all be identical. I, I, I'm not going to be like you perfectly. You're not going to be like me, and that's good. It's good that we're different. And yet when we get together, when we're unified, when we work together, and we worship together, it displays the beauty of God in a way that couldn't be otherwise. We don't lose our distinctions. We don't lose our, our, our ethnicity, our language, our gender. We don't lose all of that when we come together. We're united in it, and we proclaim God's glory better when, we're, when we work together and worship together. The Trinity is the deepest and the only true foundation for unity across diversity. Because of our, God, because of our trying God's love at the cross, we are adopted, we are united, and I want to give you a third one. We can pray. We can pray. It may seem so simple, and this is what I love about Christianity. Uh, our faith is so simple, a child can grasp it, and yet it is so profound that no scholar will ever get to the bottom of it, right? Prayer is like that. We teach our children to pray. I didn't stay the whole time, but I think probably just an hour ago during our kids' affinity worship service, the, the kids were up here praying. True, authentic, genuine prayer. And they don't need to understand all the complexities of the Trinity to be able to pray, and neither do you. You can just pray. God is pursuing you. He's calling you, and He wants you to pray. And yet, as you think about and consider how incredible this is of what God has done, it'll, it'll better encourage you to pray. Take, take, for example, what Jesus teaches His disciples to pray in Matthew 6, 9. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Just that one word, Father, is an incredible description of the gospel. We just said we've been adopted into the family of God. That is no small thing. He has brought us into the family. And we know we can only be, we can only call Him Father because of the wrath that's been taken, it's been propitiated, been taken by Jesus on the cross. And we know that's only, we can only know Him as Father because the Spirit has brought us to life. It's only possible because of Holy Week, because of this week. Kids don't have to know all that to pray, and you don't either. But when you realize what God has done, just for you to be able to call Him Father, it better encourages us to pray. We teach our, our children to pray. At the end, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. 
And we don't use that just as like a clever sign-off, like a, a radio DJ or something signing off. No, we have a, a powerful reason for saying that. In the Old Testament, the only way you could come into God's presence was if you were the high priest and you could only come once a year if you had made all the right sacrifices, right? And that one high priest came in with all the right things together for just one day, just one moment to come into God's presence. Today, still, we can only come into God's presence because of the great high priest. But it's not just in one place and one time with the right, all the right things in, in order. That great high priest is with us now. He is the Son who has come and has made the ultimate sacrifice. We have a high priest in Jesus. Hebrews 9, 24 tells us, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And verse 26 says, But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The only reason we can pray is because of Good Friday, that Jesus went to the cross and He made this sacrifice once and for all for our sins. And now that high priest is always praying with us. Spiritually, when we pray, it's like we are coming into the throne room of God. But we don't deserve to be there, so the only way we're there is that the high priest, Jesus, has brought us by the hand and brought us to the throne and invited us to speak to the Heavenly Father. If our eyes were open to what that's really like when we pray, we would be rendered speechless. We would have nothing to say because it would be so powerful. But even that's okay because the Spirit's at work to pray for us. Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know how to pray, for, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So as we bow before this throne, as we pray before Him, as we're, we're ushered into God's presence by the, by the high priest, by Jesus, the Spirit Himself is in us leading our words as we pray. That is what's going on when we pray. When we just close our eyes and quickly say a, a quick prayer, we may not think about all of that, but as we consider it, man, how much more beauty do we see and the great privilege it is to pray. And it's only possible because of the cross. It's only possible because of the cross. The last implication for us, a fitting way to end today, Palm Sunday, is that because of our triune God's love at the cross, we can partake in the Lord's Supper. We can partake in the Lord's Supper. This meal is called a lot of things, Lord's Supper. Uh, many different traditions in the early church called it the Eucharist, thinking about uh, the word for Thanksgiving. There's also a word that many times we just call it communion. Communion. And that word is about our, our connection with one another. This is a communal meal, but it's all about, also about our communion, our connection, our relationship to God. John 6, 35, Jesus said to His disciples, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. The Lord's Supper is a way of taking that in a very tangible way, an edible way of connecting with God. The Lord's Supper is, is one of the, the primary images the New Testament uses for us practicing this relationship, being connected to God. We've said all along that triune God is love. He is wanting a relationship with us. And so when we partake of the bread and of the juice, we are, we are tangibly connecting with God. We have been forgiven. We have been cleansed. The body has, has, has been broken. The blood has been shed. 
so that we can have a relationship with Him. The Trinity is this incredible truth of the Bible that helps us understand we have a relationship with God. And we can have it because He's always had a relationship within Himself. He's always been love. And so we can love Him. I want to leave you with one last quote. Uh, I got him, Fred Sanders. He says this about the Trinity. He said, A gospel that rearranges the components of your life but does not put you personally in the presence of God is too small of a gospel. My prayer for you is that you would know that God wants to be wants you to be in His presence. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But because of what we celebrate this Friday, that Christ has died, and what we celebrate on Sunday, that Christ has risen, we can be in His presence. And as we take the Lord's Supper together, we're celebrating just that. I'm going to close this in prayer and uh, and transition now to the Lord's Supper. Aaron's going to come lead us in worship, and the other elders are going to come help me serve uh, this meal together. And I pray that we'll use these moments to connect with God. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be together. It's good to consider what you have done for us on the cross. Lord, we know that because of what you've done, we, we can know you personally. God, even just praying to you is such a blessing. And so, Lord, we thank you for making yourself known so that we can know you and we can enjoy you. We can delight in you. Lord, as we worship today through this meal, God, we pray that you would stir our hearts with an affection for you, with an appreciation for the good news of the gospel. And as we sit in these moments, God, that we would turn from our sins. We would acknowledge where we're not following you. We would lay those things down before you even now. And that we would glorify you as we take this meal together. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.